sports. about um uh, we'll talk a little bit about Wimbledon how could we not after that epic final yesterday and we'll talk about um the importance of sports um in life um and how they help develop discipline and um uh, and other things so that would be something that will start at about 7:30 a.m. and then from about 8:15 a.m. onwards we shall talk about um the uh, the importance that smartwatches are gaining and providing early diagnosis help in early diagnosis of something like parkinson's as well so those are the two topics of the day the number to call is 02086877878 and with that a warm welcome to you brother imam nabil bhatti happy to be here <clears throat> how was the final yesterday oh amazing Oh uh, to be honest I'm not much of a tennis fan yeah. but when it comes to the big tennis players right. Djokovic Nadal I didn't even know till I think 2 3 days ago that Djokovic is not even number 1 yeah it's um the young young uh, Wimbledon winner Alcaraz yeah. so but the matches were really I would say mind boggling. Yeah, it was actually. You know, this is an interesting story. So uh, a friend of mine actually had uh, bought tickets for himself and his wife. He lives in Ireland. Okay. Um and he's he got the tickets for final. But when uh, you know um uh, when the final uh, was announced that it's going to be Alcaraz and, and Djokovic, he thought it's going to be a one-sided game and he decided to sell his own ticket. Oh no. <laughs> so he, <laughs> so he was here. Uh so his wife actually went on to see the match. He oh. didn't. Oh okay. That's not one of the regrets of his life now, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Wow. And what a match that turned out to be. I mean, it was uh, oh, it was buddy. amazing. It was uh, it was epic. I think it was more like a I think it was like a mental game between the two. Yeah, That's mass- all it was. Because mass- we already knew that Alcaraz is, mm. has much more energy than Djokovic. Because yeah. I think in the first um, set, Djokovic, I think, dominated 6-1. But I think that was just like a, um, you know, a way Warming of, up. <laughs> for Alcaraz to warm up. And then second and third set, he just, yeah. you know... Um, but hats off to Djokovic to be able to still play at this age correct and playing against young players and still make the finals of Wimbledon it's not small feat and and fighting till the end exactly I mean, yeah, you know you know there's there's a saying i think that if you're if you're too long in a sport you end up becoming a villain <laughs> right because as we know Djokovic through he, he used to be the underground in finals yeah right underdog and um he used to somehow push through and just win the finals and like through his reactions yesterday every no one was supporting him yeah every time Alcaraz would win a point yeah, every the crowd and he's yeah. looking at the crowd is thinking <laughs> like you know I've been here more than him and you know he was supporting me but um perhaps off to him though he's in even though and he was very gracious towards the end exactly, also exactly. you know he praised Alcaraz like anything yeah, and uh and he was uh yeah he was very composed I thought definitely definitely yeah, yeah. um hats off him then Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and hats off to Alcaraz as well. You know, he 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 didn't give up. He didn't give up at all. He was like you said, it's it was a mental game. Yeah. Uh and yes, uh, obviously being a 20-year-old, he he was expected to be physically fitter. But it was at the end of the day, like most of these games are big games are, they are mental games. Yeah. 
and um, and he was uh, he was there. He, he didn't let uh, chocolate dominate him at all. Definitely, definitely. But the it's just um, his power on the ball is just crazy. Oh yes, absolutely. He, those, it's, those not, it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not even like that. He was dominating. Uh, um, you know, in certain mm. aspects, he was mm. dominating every aspect. Correct. His service, his return service, his drop shots. It was just like he had a plan set since the beginning of a game, yeah. and he just carried down that plan Correct. to do that mentally against Djokovic, who's won what eight Grand Slams. Yeah. And uh, he's, he was he's still dominating in yeah. the world of tennis. To do that against a player such as Djokovic, it's and and you're you're absolutely right. There must have been a plan because he didn't play many of those drop shots no, before no, early was, in the game. No, no, no. I think he, he was he was waiting. He was waiting for yeah, yeah. for Djokovic for the last set. He was waiting for Djokovic to get slightly tired. Yeah, yeah. And then he started to play. And and you know with the confidence that he was actually playing them, uh, it's not easy to no, to not. play those drop shots no, uh, with the um, yeah, with the kind of pressure there Definitely is. Definitely. And and you're right. Uh, on the other hand, the power that he displayed, uh, hitting those passing shots and those foreheads, uh, forehands, uh, you know, they, they were almost fast, a couple of feet away from from Djokovic, but he no, couldn't do anything. Well, I think in the first, like you were mentioning, in the first set, um, it's like he was trying to feel out Djokovic, yeah. see where his energy level is. Because yeah. I think in the second set, he just turned it fully up, saying, that, yeah. "Look, no." Energy wise, even if he goes for the long game, he won't be able to beat me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think in terms of that mentally, but for us, such a young age to, to be able that, to do that, do it is a different thing yeah. as well. Even that itself, in a, it, it's a feat for a player. Correct. To execute the plan that was set out already, because when Djokovic dominated in the first set, I thought Djokovic would have taken it. Yeah. You know, um, but the second and third was just, but it was a good game. It was it was absolutely an amazing <laughs> game, and you're right. Uh, yeah, jo- uh, Alcaraz is a, is a special player. That's a name that I think we're going to be hearing Definitely. a lot of in the in the next couple of decades. Yeah. So, um, right, let's move uh, swiftly on to the uh, headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, a couple of Monday's papers lead with Rishi Sunak's action on university degrees. The Daily Telegraph has an interview with the Prime Minister who says the policy should say to young people that there are good alternatives to university. The paper's front page also has a story about the heat wave in Southern Europe saying it likely is uh, to push temperature to temperatures to record levels and trigger warnings for families planning to travel during the school holidays. Mr. Sunak's university degree plans also lead the Daily Mail, with the paper saying the Prime Minister vows to curb rip-off degrees. Education Secretary Julian Keegan says there are too many universities offering poor courses that don't help people get well-paid jobs or offer skills that are needed in the real world. It also has a picture of new Wimbledon champion Carlos Alcaraz next to the captain, all next to the caption "All Hail Tennis's New King Carlos." Southern Europe is bracing for a second heat storm in a week, reports Monday's Guardian. Its lead story says temperatures records could be broken on Tuesday and quotes the European Space Agency as saying the coming week could bring the hottest temperatures ever recorded in Europe in a heat wave. Named Sharon after the Greek mythological boatman who ferries souls to the underworld. The front page of the I newspaper focuses on Labour leader Keir Starmer saying he does not plan to scrap the two-child benefit limit, a line which emerged in a Sunday media round. It reports he faces anger in his party after ruling out change to controversial Tory policy. Also featured prominently at the top of the page is New Wimbledon's men's champion Carlos Alcaraz. 
The Times reports homeowners across the country are living on negative budgets where their income is is no longer meeting their basic cost because of high interest rates. The story is based on comments comments from Citizens Advice, the UK's largest debt support charity. An interesting health story leads the mirror with it reporting that drug trial results could herald the beginning of the end of Alzheimer's disease. It says the new treatment could reduce patients' mental decline significantly. Separately, the mirror is among the many papers paying tribute to actress and singer Jane Birkin. The Financial Times leads with a story about Microsoft's dated $75 billion purchase of Activision of Activision Blizzard, something which has involved a long-running battle with Sony over the Call of Duty video game title. It reports Microsoft has made regularly uh, regulatory breakthroughs in the deal and is on the brink of clinching victory. The Metro leads on the perpetual issue of water pollution, reporting that raw sewage has been pumped into dozens of beaches, with schools set to break up for holidays next week. It says torrential rain means 33 beaches in southwestern England are under sewage pollution alert. The Daily Express carries an exclusive drawn from information it receives. In a Freedom of Information request, it reports sex predators assaulting more than 160 people on police premises, but hardly anyone was charged. The figure covers 10 forces for almost four years. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics we shall be covering this morning. So the first topic is about sports, about the importance of sports and uh, about um, uh, Wimbledon as well, uh, about the role sports play in uh, in our lives. And we shall be talking about um, uh, quite a bit about uh, sports in general, but also uh, the sports acti- activities within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, something which is given a lot of importance to. And um, then from age 15, the, that topic, we'll, we shall start about 7.30. And the second topic uh, from about age 15 a.m. onwards is about smartwatches and um, the help that they are expected to provide in early diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So those are the two topics of this morning. Please do join us. This is a live show. You can call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we shall continue with the discussion on what's happening in um, uh, in, in the world of politics, uh, sports, as well as uh, what's happening within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Do stay tuned. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. What is Dajjal? Prophecies about the appearance of the Dajjal in the latter days are mentioned in many Islamic traditions. Before Islam, some of the other prophets also mentioned Dajjal in their prophecies, and he is therefore known to the followers of these prophets too, but with different names. For example, in Christianity, he is known as the Antichrist, and some descriptions about him are mentioned in the Bible. In all these prophecies, the Dajjal is always described as a very evil and deceitful being whose main purpose is to spread darkness in the world to prevent mankind from establishing a spiritual relationship with the creator of the universe. From the Holy Quran and through the sayings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, وسلم, Muslims have learnt a lot about the Dajjal. This includes his description, the ways by which one can recognise him, and the methods of protecting oneself from Dajjal's deceit and mischief. 
Muslims were also informed about the means by which this Dajjal was to be defeated, where it was clearly indicated that Dajjal will be destroyed at the hands of the promised Messiah of the latter days. However, like all other prophecies, this information must be taken metaphorically and should not be expected to be fulfilled literally. Some people think that Dajjal is an individual person or a physical being, but it is understood from the sayings of the Holy Prophet that Dajjal is not a person but rather an assembly that will be the cause of creating corruption in the world. The Arabic word Dajjal is derived from the root Dal Jim Lam, which means to cover or to conceal. From this it is understood that Dajjal is the one who falsely appears to be truthful and honest while hiding the true disposition of wickedness and mischief. The word Dajjal implies two connotations. First, it signifies a group which supports falsehood and works with cunning and deceit. Second, it is a name that indicates Satan, who is the father of all falsehood and corruption. As Dajjal spreads evil and causes spiritual destruction in the world, he will obviously attack Islam and attempt to ruin its true teachings. But since the Islamic teachings are perfect and final teachings from God, so it was God's promise that he will always protect these teachings. Hence, as prophesied by the Holy Prophet ﷺ, God sent the Prince Messiah of the latter days to destroy Dajjal and demolish all Dajjal constructions. Assalamu Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday the 17th of July and the time is 7.19am and we're talking about um, the events happening um, uh, globally as well as um, before the break we were talking about Wimbledon so let's maybe shift gears and talk about something which is um, which is a flagship event within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. It's an annual event and uh, we call it the Jalsa Salana. It's, uh, it's the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, it's held every year um, about uh, the uh, the COVID years and um, uh, it's an event where, uh, you know, about 40,000 people this year, we're expecting about 50,000 people converge in a, uh, in a farm um, in Alton in beautiful countryside. And um, talk about peace and talk about progress um, uh, that is spiritual progress. Um, so let's maybe talk a little bit about that uh, with uh, my fellow presenters here. Here, Imam um, Nabil Bhatti, if I can uh, come to you. Yeah. What, um, uh, how have you, uh, so you're part of the Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, the MTA team here in London, uh, what sort of preparations have you guys, guys been making uh, for the annual convention to be held uh, in about two weeks' time? So, um, right now I am with the MT Africa, so with MTA International is that they are currently on site and they are building the studios Correct. within the site, which is a lot of um, hard work, hmm. um, ideally, and it's all volunteers. Yeah. Um, it's not paid workers, um, so they are very... I would say it is very hard work because I remember doing it last year, taking down the studios, mm. and that was just a lot of work. A lot of work, mm. mentally and straining and physically, and it was really hard at that time as also. Mm. May Allah bless their efforts. Um, mm. With the within MTA International, uh, I'm I'm currently under MTA Africa, so our plan this year, like always, is that we have certain contracts with the external channels where they broadcast the proceedings of the annual convention mm. and this includes includes the addresses of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrud Ahmed Merlabi's helper and um, in order to you know um, 
once we do get that contract to broadcast for a few hours or maybe the whole three days of Jalsa, we also have our own studio within Jalsa site where there's a live broadcast going to those channels mm. um, where um, within including um, His Holiness speeches, um, there are studio programs that go on with it. So with the live proceedings, um, what I'm helping out is getting the guests for those studio programs and briefing them and making sure that they're on time. Mm. Um, in, in a broadcast, time is essential. So even if you're like a minute or two, li- two minutes late, the whole rundown can just go yeah. forth and backwards and can ruin the whole um, flow of the sure. live pro- um, broadcast. So my initial um, plan and idea is to and help out with the guests and, and brief them in terms of the studio programs prior to the annual convention. So that's what we're doing right now. Right. Um, Imam Bashar Zafri, if I can bring you in, uh, what sort sort of preparations um, have uh, have you guys been making? You're, uh, you're part of the Institute of Theology and, and Modern Languages. Um, and, and that plays an important part every year uh, for the preparations as well as during the Chalsa. Uh, absolutely. So <clears throat> there is a there is no specific duty that is assigned to the staff uh, of the institute. There is uh, different people working in different departments, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm <coughs> I'm under the Maksaneta Savir department, the image library. Right. Uh, as far as the institute is concerned, uh, a lot of the boys, well, m- all of the boys, um, they are required to do duties on site as well as other duties that are required from them. Hmm. So you have uh, boys working in different departments, whether that's food serving, pot washing, and yearly it's changed, so they they, they get um, a, an opportunity to kind of see, you know, throughout their five, six, seven years' time which they spend in that institute, they get to see the different departments, how they run, how they work, and how they have, an, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> how they affect you know, j- uh, Jalsa, or this yeah. annual convention, right. how, you know, how crucial that particular department is. So they get to see all of those things with those within that time. Uh, similarly, I think uh, Imam Nabil could also agree that during the time that we spend at the Institute, we had the opportunity to go through different duties. Hmm. Some are very tough, some are, you know, some are reasonably uh, fine, they're not too extensive. Uh, my f- very first year when I started, we started, uh, you know, doing duty at the uh, roti plant, so the bread making yeah. plant. Yeah. And that was quite extensive because <laughs> at that time it wasn't, we didn't have the facility of a whole, you know, uh, machinery there. Right. So we were still picking up, you know, the bags of flour, putting it in mix. We had a mixer at that time. Yeah. Um, that would mix for us, then we'll take it ourselves. We make the, you know, the balls for for the for the flatbread to be uh, prepared. We would have to prepare the balls first, so we would get some flour <coughs> or the dough, and then make that. And the shifts were quite long, and then we had to stay there. Mm. Make sure that whatever's going through the machine wasn't, you know, causing any disturbance in the flow. Then the bread would be baked, and then take that out, put it into bags. Yeah. So that was the f- very first year. This is when I was about sixteen, seventeen. That was the first time, you know, yeah. you felt that we were doing something. And, and like, uh, you know, just to give our listeners some idea, 
Uh, we're talking about uh, you know that plant produces about what hundred thousand. Uh, uh, oh yes, <coughs> rotis a, a day. And this is previously previous to the move to Hadid Medi. So, the roti plant or the bake, uh, bread baking plant used to be in Islamabad. Oh, okay, uh, right. It was in Tilford before, in and, Tilford, and absolutely. okay. So you're talking about the Tilford plant, uh, right? The Tilford plant. Correct. So this yeah. uh, that that's no longer in um, you know in use yeah, because it's been, the, the it's been new shifted to the, the shifted to to uh, uh, to the convention site. Yes. Yeah. So and and the plant is much bigger in Alton area, yeah. uh, and it's got the facilities, the machinery. Yeah. But the one in Tilford was very, you know, it was still in the initial process of going yeah. to the. Well, I have actually uh, done a year's duty in um, uh, in in the plant at um, at the Jalsa site at the convention right. site in Alton, and I can tell you that uh, you're absolutely right. It's not as uh, physically intensive as it is, but it's still needs it's very, a lot of work. It, it does. It does. You know, it's, it's a whole process, as you said. You know, the the, the dough, the flour has to be mixed, and then the dough yeah. needs to be prepared, and then. Uh, the machine does uh, quite a bit of work, but there's still but you have you, to be you have, you have to, be, to there. be there, and and you know uh, still uh, you have to aid the the machine if I can put of it course, that way in uh, of in a lot of because it's uh you know it's a it's a it's a comp and and it's uh yeah the 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 roti or the the bread that actually comes out is it's hot it's nice and it's uh yeah uh, it's actually a treat so yeah um and again you know uh, Imam Nabil you were also talking about um uh, you know the the intensive work. Again, you know, we, we're talking about this is uh, this is uh, not a small event. We're talking about you know forty to fifty thousand people yeah. <clears throat> converging on a farm, and the council only gives um, the community only twenty eight days as yeah. per regulations to yeah. build that mini city and demolish that city yeah. uh, within twenty eight days. So it's a Herculean task actually, yeah. with you know f- about close to about five thousand volunteers. Who take part every year, year on year, in in this Herculean effort, and during those three days, um, everybody is is fed two to three meals a day, yeah, uh, hot meals, yeah. <laughs> so, it is uh, it is it, it is a sight to see really for anybody, um, and anybody and everybody is actually welcome to come and attend uh, that event. Uh, this year is going to be held uh, in a couple of weeks' time, from twenty eighth, twenty ninth, and the thirtieth of uh, July. Uh, and as I said, it's uh, held in um, in a farm in Alton, Hampshire. So, Don Sab, can you share some highlights from your previous tours as well? Duties that you've done, bits that you've enjoyed. Yeah. So, so, so that our you know, our listeners they can get uh, get an you know first hand not first hand yeah. experience, but they can get some sort of an idea. What actually happens at this convention? Yeah, <coughs> sure, absolutely. So, uh, so I moved to to the UK in 2013. At the end of in December 2013. Uh, so my my first uh, sort of convention after moving here. I'd attended conventions before, but uh, after moving here was uh, the first one was 2014, and right. that was when I did my duty in um, in the roti plant or the bread plant as we uh, described. And uh, and after that, I got involved in um, uh, in the outreach team, in the public team, and uh, I for the subsequent years, uh, bar the last year where I did my uh, sort of volunteering with the Voice of Islam team, I've been with the with the outreach team, inviting guests and uh, and and looking after guests, which which is also quite a major operation. You know, the three to three to four hundred people. Uh, this year, probably a lot more than that, um, are invited. External guests, you know, could be of uh, any faith or no faith, and um, uh, they 
come and they attend the event and they um uh, they, they see all the um uh, the action live as well as uh, you know just as i said the, the whole uh, you know the the experience of uh, just seeing you know 40 to 50000 people in in one location and and so and just with one or two police or you know in the entire site all, all you see is uh, you know uh, one or two uh, policemen just um, so it's it's an it's an I amazing. I think they're guests. They're not. They, they, they're also <laughs> exactly. guests. Exactly. <laughs> they're That's also the guests. They're enjoying their time there. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, the volunteers just such a, do such a, a massively impressive job. You know, just and 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 just imagine, so many people are actually staying on the site, yep. looking after yeah. them, looking after the uh, just the food. I mean, just the logistics of food. You know, the, uh, two to three three hot meals a day. Just imagine, uh, you know, forty thousand people you, you're serving. Yeah. And uh, and and within sort of very tight deadlines, uh, timelines also Absolutely. because uh, you know you have only what forty five minutes to one hour to feed those uh, people. You're talking about the feeding of people and hot food. So I mentioned you go through different uh, duties in different places, departments, and I think in my third year, fourth year, I was in the kitchen right. preparing the hot meals for the guests, and they have a massive team. But that duty. It was very very challenging uh, because uh, you know first you have to prepare for breakfast uh, and though the breakfast hot meals aren't too extensive you know they're sometimes chana mm. you know chickpeas yeah but uh, <clears throat> you know to be up and early you know starting work at five a.m. so that you have breakfast prepared by nine seven eight that was quite extensive and then as soon as you get done with the breakfast. Now it's time to start doing the preparations for lunch. Exactly. And lunch is, is around one one thirty two. Yeah. And there's you know there's heaps of, you know these um, rice fl- uh, rice um, uh, bags that you have to bring. You have to wash the rice, yeah. print the pots. That's just the rice. Mm. Then you have the uh, the dal, the lentil. Yeah. You have to, you know, prepare that, mix yeah. it, clean that, and then there's buckets of it, yeah. uh, hundreds of buckets of it. Correct. You carry that to the pots. Yeah. Then there, there hundreds it, of pots. Hundreds <laughs> of pots. And thing, the thing is, what people don't realize is that <clears throat> standing there and just mixing, <clears throat> yeah, all the food is very, very difficult. You have to be, you know, you have to keep yourself hydrated because it is physically intensive. Right. It's very hot in there. Mm. Excruciating heat. Uh, so you have to keep yourself hydrated. You have to keep yourself, you know, some. You know, you, you need to walk around sometimes just to get some fresh air, because imagine all the pots are in just in one place, right? And they're all cooking and yeah. they're boiling. So you got mm. the meat and uh, potatoes being prepared in, on one side. Right. You got uh, uh, rice being prepared on one side. You got the the lentil being prepared on one side. And there's like 50, 50 pots of each, 50 to 60, yeah, even I think more than 50, but probably 100 pots of each yeah. being prepared. And, and huge pots. I mean, yes, we're not talking about small <coughs> pots. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty that, big. And the thing is, that is a and, very And to move those pots as well then from one place to another, you know, fill, pot filled with lentil or the rice, it's a you know, huge pot. That, that in itself is such... So you have to pack it. Work. You have to pack it. And so you once you've it's it, prepared, yeah. you put lid on. Yeah. And basically using cling film, you have to wrap it so that when it's being transported from the kitchen to the marquee where the food will be served, you have to ensure that it doesn't spill. Yeah. So to to you know to prevent that from happening, you cover it <clears throat> or you wrap it with the cling film, right? Or cling film type um, 
material and that itself you know you've, you've just taken off the hot pot from off the off the stove straight onto the thing put the thing on and it's ready to go <clears throat> awesome right so um with that let's conclude uh, this segment and swiftly move on to the the first topic of uh, the morning which is about sports um so we we started off the show actually talking about um Wimbledon and and the 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 amazing final that we all witnessed today so what is the importance of sports um in uh, in anybody's life what is why do we why do we have sports so um uh, before we sort of go into uh, to our first guest Imam Nabil Bhatti if I can come to you, you you play football very regularly why do you play football what, what sort of importance does it have for you um yeah why why do you need to sweat out uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then annoying my wife and cleaning my gym clothes and football clothes um i think for me it's more of a mental release from working all day and you know um everyone has problems sure. so i think you know throughout life everyone's got obstacles that they're going through yeah for me of course it's a physical benefit of getting your heart rate up and um you know making sure that your cardio cardiovascular system is working well etc for me is more of a mental side where i can release all my stress on the pitch and think about nothing just playing football and playing enjoying it with my friends that's all it is right um yeah Let's maybe talk about uh, this uh, football tournament, this international football yeah. tournament that was organized uh, by our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, only uh, last month. You were a part of it. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Um, uh, how international was it? And uh, uh, I believe there were twenty twenty one teams from yeah. from twelve countries. So, um, um, which team were you part of, and uh, how did that sort of tournament evolve? So, um, the team that I was part of was with. Fuzlumer so UK itself had four teams right so it was the UK A team of course the actual team and then the Fuzlumer team included it was basically all the live devotees um under the community um were assigned a team where they mm. could play right um besides that there was also a Jamia team mm. that also played the institution of theology and modern languages right and then there was another team that was from north um UK So ideally Bradford Manchester for those guys who couldn't come down ideally to London to try out for the trials for the UK team. So UK itself had four teams. Um like you mentioned there's over 20 teams from 12 countries. And uh, I think it was over three days period and uh, it was at um I can't remember the place now but the facilities were really good. And uh it was amazing in terms of um, because i think they're close to waybridge uh, yeah it was it yeah. was it was i can't exactly remember it was a bit time back and uh, yeah the 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 way the organizers um, you know handled it and uh, the games and everything was was spectacular it's uh, so how did your team do unfortunately we couldn't go through there's only one point difference <laughs> <laughs> um due to it was it was basically um the top two of every group can go through but it's only those who have the top uh, points from the groups so ideally only so it, i think there was five groups so top two of four groups can go through right so right. and we were only missing on one point to go through to the quarterfinals sure <laughs> so ideally um we were we were playing against jamia in in the last match right and it was basically seniors with juniors right um, so it was more like a you know i, I would say it was like a more like a 
tug of war kind of you know there's no no one's going for the ball but it's go for the players um Sefri <laughs> Saab was there as well as the yeah. manager um no no brotherly love on no no brotherly love on that pitch yeah, um, yeah. but no it, it was it was a good game and uh, we did manage to beat them by 1-0 but that that didn't didn't make a difference it depended on the other match and they they managed to get a point but no alhamdulillah the experience was um you know after a long time an international tournament happened yeah. and it brought a lot of people new people together as well from other countries so it was good right okay tell us a little bit about the final what happened at the final to our who was the final it was, it was germany and uh, germany, germany and uk no oh, it was in islamabad yeah, yes. yeah so um, it was, it, yes so it was in the abode of his holiness um yeah it was intense final but i think more people were so i don't know for some reason um it was a sudden goal for uk i was i came a bit late so i wasn't able to watch it but um the the, the game but the germans were controlling the yeah, uk too easily yeah i think yeah the uh, uh, i think the composure in the genetics that the germans <laughs> have you can't take that away from them even if someone yes. just started playing football right it's just that's such a natural composure of not taking pressure and um i think that sudden goal that uk scored just woke them up a bit right and they 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 dominate the and and you know for me actually i i could take the the loss to the germans in football but then you know what happened two weeks later so the other international <laughs> tournament that we organized which is cricket yeah and then you know uk uh, england being a cricket playing nation international nation and then the top playing nation and then also beaten by the germans <laughs> who don't uh, play any, any any cricket that was that was a bit harsh uh, for yeah. me to take so uh, not easy let's now go to somebody who actually was involved in the organization of both of these um, uh, these sports events Imam Raza Ahmad assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome sir to the breakfast show assalamu alaikum good morning good morning sir so uh, yeah uh, as you may have heard we've talk- we're talking about the the football tournament and the cricket tournament you were very very actively involved uh, in the organization so so maybe tell us a little bit about what sort of work went on to the um with the, to organize something like um as something like um uh, you know the football tournament let's maybe take that first um uh, you know what uh, 20 uh, 2021 teams from uh, 12 countries uh, give us a picture of uh, uh, what sort of organization effort is required to hold such a tournament yeah you have to right i mean um 20 teams 21 teams might not sound a lot uh, but uh, again the logistics that goes into it the planning that goes into it Uh, you don't just start like a week or two before so mm. we were looking at uh, i think i think it's, a, it's been a couple weeks before that that we already knew that this is going to happen so you start with a very basic with you know accommodation with food with trans- transportation and then everything slowly slowly comes together so you have to look at each and every single team in each and every single country that is being represented and then of course the first step is to send out the invitations hmm. now we have a tournament how many of uh, the invitations that you send back actually reply in the affirmative that yes we will be taking part and then after that everything falls into place because if we know that we will have to cater for 200 people then you plan accordingly but if you know that there is going to be 250 or 300 people then you know the plans change just a little bit but it's it's you know multiple things that are happening at the same time um and and uh, it's the formation of the teams that then slowly slowly comes together 
But as you said, I mean, it's uh, so many things that you have to consider mm. um, in, 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 in you know, organizing an event like this. But these were some of the major and the, the main kind of uh, areas or the main teams, the main things that we had to look after. Transportation was a very big, um, sure. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say issue, but it was a very big part. Mm because these are teams coming from outside. Some of the teams, they brought their own transportation, but when we look at the European teams, and we're talking about the uh, you know the Germans, um, they came on their own bus, they brought their own coach, and you had other teams from uh, Europe, like Belgium or France, they came, of course, on cars, but then you had teams from America, you had teams from Canada, uh, the Australians, I mean, uh, who who were here for the first time, and you had to pick them up from the airport. You have to drop them off to the place of accommodation. Then, when when they when they have to go from their accommodation to the ground, and then also what we were focusing on, or we tried to focus on just a little bit here, was um, the you know they came for the football. But again, because this is the residence of His Holiness, this mm. is where he lives, so we wanted to have them as close to to this, yeah. um, you know, to His And he is possible. the attraction, really. I mean, that's uh, he, he yeah, you know, that, he's the magnet it, yeah. which really attracts everybody. Uh, everything else is sort of a sort of an excuse. Um, Tell us, uh, you are, you are from Germany, although you may not sound like it. But you know, tell us what what's uh, what's with the Germans? How could they defeat the uh, the English in in cricket? I mean, football, as I said, yeah, I can I can fathom that. I can I can digest that. But cricket, yeah, it's like with the pretty much uh, every other thing that the Germans are good at, <laughs> and. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Starting from the cars, yeah, <laughs> and the, and the roads, <laughs> and the infrastructure, and the houses, and and the health system, <laughs> and you name it. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, the efficiency. I think it, as as the um, you know just mentioned, it's the composure. It's it's how they're brought up. I think it's from a very early age. It's it's about quality. It's not about you know the show off or the hoo-ha it might look boring but yeah. if it gets the, the the job done in an efficient way sure why not are, are they brought up to uh, to defeat the english in in whatever uh, arena they meet i, I think it's in is it's that in part the of the their training it's it's in the genetics <laughs> it's in the dna now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Excellent. Uh, thank you so very much, Imam Raza, for joining us this morning. Uh, it's uh, delightful to speak to you as always. Thank you for your time. Jazakallah. Wa Peace be with you. So that was uh, Imam Raza, who um, played a very active part in the in the management and organizing uh, organization of uh, both the tournaments. And as I said, I mean, it's a it's a Herculean effort, uh, considering I think uh, to just to sort of bring things into context. Both tournaments, uh, or, or most activities that are organized by within the Amdi Muslim community, are organized by volunteers. So whether this annual convention that we're talking about of 40,000, 50,000 people, uh, that's organized by volunteers, you know, 
building up this mini city in a, on a farm uh, in beautiful English countryside and then, you know, uh, unconstructing that uh, that city, as well as uh, this particular tournament um, or both of these tournaments as well. So it's, uh, if you think about it in that perspective, you know, uh, organizing, managing um, uh, the transportation, managing um, the um, uh, the accommodation of all of these people. Uh, let's now uh, go to somebody who um, actually uh, was um, was responsible for organizing both of these tournaments. Um, Imam Mujib Mirza, who is the um, secretary of Majlis uh, Zaid. Uh, or the um, uh, the health um, association uh, within the Amdhav Muslim community, wh- under which and the o- under the auspices of which both tournaments are um, actually or were organised. Assalamu alaikum, peace with you. A very warm welcome, uh, Imam Ajib, uh, to the breakfast show. Well, um, thank you for having me, Daniel. Thank you, uh, thank you, sir, for joining us. So, uh, yeah, tell us a, a little bit. Actually, before I go there, tell us. What is the purpose of organizing these tournaments? Why, why do we organize them? Well, the vision, Daniel, is to create an environment where the youngsters can come and play sport at the same time, enhance their spirituality, and uh, give them an environment of brotherhood, and also give them an opportunity to be closer to their caliph, the worldwide head of the Indian Muslim community who is residing in London so they can offer prayers behind him and be in his company uh, at the same time have a very healthy sporting competition so that's basically the vision and it started uh, back in 2008 and we've been going ever since then right so this was um, uh, starting maybe with the football tournament which was organized uh, first um, this was uh, the the first tournament which was organized after a gap of a few years because of COVID. Um, how many people were staying um, at um, at the mosque, at the mosque complex, I should say, which is the Baitul Fudu complex where we are actually broadcasting uh, from as well? How many people uh, were you hosting at one time? So this tournament was the first in terms of international scale. We have had European tournaments previously, right. i.e. football. And this year for cricket, for football, we had about 250 to 300 people staying in Batavstu Mosque, uh, residing there. And then we would, trans- we would provide them transport and, and hospitality on, from site to the various grounds and whatnot. Right. So, so you were managing the transport and that included pick and drop to airport uh, uh, to, yeah. to, the, to the tea that included uh, their food um, uh, you know three meals a day and that included yeah, so it has, it's, there's a huge um, a lot of work goes behind this in mm. terms of providing them transport we pick them up from the airport uh, from Heathrow Gateway and then bring them to the site uh, the mosque they, we, before they get there, we make sure that all the bedding is in place, everything, the environment is clean, and it's perfect for them to stay in. And then while they're in the mosque, then we also make sure that the food is available and the time, uh, the schedule is put up there so they know what time is dinner, what time is breakfast, what time is lunch, so there's no confusion. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a massive operation in place to accommodate these guests. 
and also the tournament as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's now uh, go to the tournament. So we've talked about the organisation you know, in in terms of uh, um, uh, in terms of the arrangements. Let's talk about the tournament itself. So, what went um, into the into organising the football matches themselves? How many matches were there? Um, uh, you 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 must have had officials officiating. How many people were doing that? And uh, were they all volunteers? Were they professionals? Uh, give us a sense. So basically, the way the football aspect of this tournament works is that um, about six months before the tournament, we would send out the invites to different countries to tell them about this event coming up. And if they would like to participate, they have to let us know. It is an 11-side tournament, so it's a full-scale football tournament. It's not seven on either side. And then those countries which did send, which will, which did. Uh, sent us their interest we would start communicating with them and then we would give them the rules and regulations and send that to them before they get here so they know what they're doing or would they know what kind of ground they're playing on because they're, again when it comes to football there's artificial grass there's grass and then there's astroturf as well so there's different types of gra- uh, uh, ground so we, we let them know beforehand so they know what kind of footwear they need to bring and so when they get here the tournament starts the tournament is played on 11 side basis so this year we had uh, a total of 19 teams. So there was uh, four groups of, uh, well, there was three groups of five and then one group of four. And uh, first we held the group matches, and then it went on to the quarterfinals and the semifinals and the finals. Um, and in total, about we had about 37, 38 matches, and uh, give or take. In terms of the officials, we did have FA-approved uh, referees on site uh, for all matches. And we wanted to make sure that the standard is maintained. And other than that, uh, the linesmen were also uh, part of the teams that came to the tournament, so we would ask them. There was also a management body in terms of running the football. They had their own structure. They were the ones who were uh, making sure that the matches are happening on time. The teams are present. and that no time is wasted because again with with these tournaments the time is very limited we only have two or three days to play with mm. so it's, it's back-to-back matches and also in between we have to make sure the prayers are offered uh, there was Friday so we have to make sure Friday 7 was listened to so everything has to go in order just to uh, make sure everything is done smoothly so that football team works very closely with other teams who are making sure the food is delivered on time the transportation is done so a lot of people have to work very closely together to make this tournament happen. I hope I answered that question for you. You, you absolutely did. Uh, you nailed it. So if I bring in um, cricket as well, how many venues did you have to hire uh, if we um, took both football and, and cricket combined? Well, football, we were very lucky that we found this one venue which had three fields, yeah. three 11-a-side pitches, and uh, actually the, one, the, the main ground actually was a stadium ground, which was really good. Um, and, and other than that, the finals were actually... T- would, which uh, the finals actually happened near Guildford and Farnham uh, because we, we were hoping to uh, be close to His Holiness, which uh, who also resides in Farnham. In terms of cricket, we actually had a lot of venues. So we had in total, we had about nine grounds and they were all scattered around. So we had grounds in Barnes, we had grounds in Chiswick, we had about... Uh, four grounds in Merton Council as well. Um, the way the 
this year, for the first time, what we did was we also ventured out of Merton. Previous years, with cricket, we would only stay within the Merton Council. But this year, not only we had Merton Council grounds, we also hired some private grounds. And the private grounds, again, their standard is obviously going to be much higher. So the teams that managed to play there or they got, got the chance to play there, they really enjoyed playing on those private grounds because it was just very, very nice to play on and also very professionally maintained. Right, and so for both of the tournaments, of course, you've spoken about the hard work that goes to <clears throat> to basically execute the management of it. But what has the response been from the players that have come from, especially abroad? What sort of feedback have they given? How, what kind of, you know, how do they enjoy the tournament? And, you know, what were their comments? Um, the comments are always very positive. Again, this was happening after three years. We were we were worried about, we were nervous about a couple of things, but overall, the the feedback and the comments received were very positive, uh, very appreciative of the efforts made by the made by the management in executing this. Again, yes, there are areas where we can learn from things. We did have a red book meeting to ensure that you know whatever uh, we missed or things that could have been that are arranged, we will be doing that for the future years. But um, as I said, overall, everyone was very happy. They were very uh, excited to come back after three years. And they were, um, and also the fact that we managed to do two tournaments back to back, because remember, we only had a period of two weeks in between to execute these two tournaments. It was very, very demanding for the management, but the management did come through and people we had around us were very good and also very proactive so that really does did help and I'm grateful to my team Excellent, Imam Mujib thank you so very much for joining us uh, this morning and, and telling us about this very important sporting activity that takes place um, uh, within, a, it's part of the tradition really within the Amdiya Muslim community something that we hold very dear and, and you explain the reasons uh, for those Thank you once again, peace be with you Thank you for having me so that was uh, Imam Mujib uh, Mirza, who who is the secretary of uh, the um, the body which actually organises both the cricket and the football tournaments and and and, and other sports activities um, as well. I, I think I, sh- I I should mention as well uh, that uh, only probably um, you know a couple of months before these tournaments were held, there was an international uh, women's uh, football tournament. Uh, sorry, uh, basketball tournament. <coughs> Which is organised by the uh, by the MDM Muslim community as well. I think I think it was the volleyball tournament. Volleyball tournament. Oh, sorry, yeah. I, I beg your pardon. Yeah. It was the yeah. volleyball tournament? Yes, and and that was uh, pretty international as well. I think uh, quite a few teams took part. Uh, uh, again, uh, you know, there were teams from Canada. I remember there was a team from uh, from Australia. They were, I'm sure Germany must be there. Germany is, is everywhere. <laughs> um, I think we have, you have something specific against the Germans. Okay, no? Like I, I, I just told you, men cricket. I mean, I just can't. I can't digest Fathom that. Right. Yeah, the way it is that yeah. even I think the the players that Germany had, they weren't even Germans. <laughs> in cricket, yeah, they're mostly from Pakistan. Is is that it? Yeah, is is that, is that, is that the so reason? So the essence right? of yeah. Pakistan, where you're from, basically yeah. won against yeah. UK. Yeah, but Which but you know, a I proud c- moment. But but <laughs> the thing is, you can argue that then, isn't it? Because the, the, a lot of the players that were playing for UK teams are exactly. from the Pakistani background. That's true. Yeah. Right? So it's a Pakistani Pakistan. There you go. Then. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
So you know, there, there were there were a lot of people from from. But my other sort of thing would be that uh, you know, with the kind of facilities that would, uh, I would imagine. I mean, I mean, I, I I'm not. Uh, I've not been not that close to <laughs> to the place in Germany to understand the dynamics there, but I would imagine that the sports facilities, the cricket facilities, especially yeah. in England, would be a lot more, a lot better, um, a lot more organized. Uh, you know, we have the county cricket, then we have club mm. cricket, and then we have the whole infrastructure here, because England is is uh, you know the top uh, cricket playing nation in the world. You know, if not Holland so in Germany, ha- if Holland had won against Jam- uh, England. Or UK, it would still make some sense because you know they play cricket on an international level. Holland, they exactly, do. yeah, they've yeah. got a team. They play well. some cricket uh, internationally. Yeah, but Germany is nowhere to be seen on the radar when it comes to cricket. So, but I think it, I it think is baffling. Yeah, it is baffling. But I think it makes sense <laughs> at the end of the day when you see that most of the players, yeah, they had been playing, uh, you know, back at home and they were in Pakistan, maybe or India or Bangladesh, wherever they had come from. So I think the there's, there's cricket. I think a, there's probably something also to do with the mindset and something that we, we were actually talking about <laughs> earlier uh, about the final, the the Wimbledon final, you know, and and the importance that uh, mindset plays and and mental toughness plays. So Imam resigned towards that as well earlier in the interview. But it's true. I mean, the, you know, there's a whole thing. If you look at the documentaries, especially with the sporting, uh, you know, teams and individuals, they have. Uh, <clears throat> They have mental therapy, you know, to sh- give them that extra boost yeah. to be able to deal with the stress, to be able to deal with the pressure. Right. So they all they all have those, you know, one to one sessions with the sports psychiatrists that give them that support. So it's it's a lot that you know goes mm. into giving them that mentality. And even Alcaraz, who won the Wimbledon, the one thing that you know you know gave him the edge it was their mental fortitude because yeah. he was losing 6-1 in the first set he lost the first set yeah. and that is you know Djokovic was running all over him mm. and for him to come back from that and then mm. you know be par to par with him throughout the match and mm. then taking it at the end breaking him twice in the last <laughs> yeah. set and this is Djokovic. We're not speaking about some random yeah. person who's just started playing tennis. This yeah. guy is champion. He's been Wimbledon champion seven times. And he's the <laughs> guy who actually uh, turned the match on Roger Federer only, yeah. what, four years ago in 2019 final where mm. he, he took the match away from him from a, from a match point yeah. and then went on to win that match. So, yeah, absolutely. But, I, I yeah, as, uh, as we were talking, talking about earlier as well, I think it was... I, you know, it seemed from the start. Now, looking back in retrospect, it seems that Alcaraz was actually playing Djokovic from from the start. He was he was making him tired. He was just sort of uh, you know sensing um, his fitness and and whatnot in the first set. And after that, he just um, sort of went for it. Right. We are coming up to the eight o'clock news. We will continue discussion on this topic about the importance of sports, and we'll talk to another guest after the eight o'clock news. Please do stay tuned.
أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh peace and blessings of allah be upon you today is monday the 17th of july 2023 the time is 8:03 am you're listening to daniel zia imam mubashir zafri and imam nabil bhatti live from the south london studios of voice of islam this morning we're talking about sports the importance of sports uh, we've talked about a couple of sports tournaments uh, that uh, uh, are organized every year uh, here in the UK international tournaments uh, within the Ahmedabad Muslim community and why they are organized and what is the importance of that uh, let's go uh, now to our last guest for this uh, segment Abigail Todoff who is um, part of the charity give it your max she's a former professional tennis player with over 15 years of experience in sports and entertainment business prior to a new position Abigail is formerly uh, a client director at Octagon Incorporated, where she was recognized as one of the leading agents in the industry, managing and supporting global talents such as Anna Konnikova, Andy Murray, and Martina Higgins. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Very well, and thank you so very much, Abigail, for for joining us this morning. So maybe no, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's uh, start with um, with Wimbledon. Uh, it's still um, fresh in our minds. Um, what impact do you think um, watching something like that, you know, like kind of like the final that we witnessed yesterday, has on the development uh, of anybody watching it, especially children? I think it had a huge impact. Um, I think those that have come from sport and played a lot in their life really understand the power of sports and, uh, and, and that power and what it can achieve with youngsters coming through. Um, I know from my from my own little children, kind of watching yesterday, who were six and four, and for them, just watching, you know, these these giants really, and these um, these huge idols like Alcaraz, um, and and obviously on the female side as well, with the with the top women playing. I mean, there's just so much like Anjabur and her attitude and and her presence on court that, that it's such an inspiration for these younger kids coming through. Um, and that's so important, and I think it's so important for us um, to have these great role models that are that are behaving well on court and and giving their best and working hard. And I think that that can instill some really great lessons in, in the youngsters coming through today. So, is that uh, sort of what you do at Give It Your Max? So, at the charity at Give It Your Max, um, it was established in in two thousand and four. Um, so, we've been going for nearly twenty years, um, and it was set up by Mike and Tara Stotesbury in memory of their son, Max. Um, he died, unfortunately, in a car accident um, when he was very young. And he had worked with the WJTI, which is the uh, Wimbledon um, Foundation. And he was a tennis coach, um, played a lot of tennis himself. And it was Mike and Tara's passion to to really kind of spread the word and to do the great work that the Wimbledon Foundation had been doing, but also on a wider scale across the country. So what we do um, is we go into primary schools and state schools um, and we use pupil premium. So we don't go into any school that's lower than 35% on pupil premium. So we really know that it's, it's areas of, of great need um, for the work that we're doing. And we offer free tennis lessons 
Um, and we also run a breakfast club as well. So we go in before the, the children's academic, academic day has started, offering them a healthy breakfast and also a tennis lesson. Um, and we also work with, with um, in disabilities. We've got a disability program starting from ages four up until 18 across the country. And then we have what we call, I'll give it your max plus, which is working with the children kind of transitioning from primary to secondary school, um, giving them that continuation of their tennis offering. Because what we found is that we were doing a great job within primary schools, but then what happens to these children when they're transitioning to, to secondary school, which obviously is quite a turbulent time for some of them and, and where some children can maybe take possibly the wrong path. Um, and sport is so is so vital in giving them, um, a, you know, a positive um, outlook and, 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 and to be healthy. Um, so that's what the charity is about. We work in inner cities. We work in London, Manchester, Birmingham, Aberdeen, and we're just about to launch two new programmes in Hull and Liverpool. So we're, we're a busy charity. We're relatively small, but uh, we are... We've got big, big plans for the future and we just want to um, to really make a difference with these children's lives. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, nowadays um, equality is such a big thing. Diversity is, you know, being discussed. And, of course, you stated that, you know, you're a charity and, of course, you also rely on other people helping you out as well. So um, the Wimbledon Foundation, how does that support Give It Your Max to help with the community work that you do uh, generally? And how has it benefited you, you know, from a personal experience, working with these kids and getting them involved in tennis? Yeah, I think um, well, to answer on, on the Wimbledon Foundation, they've been a great support um, for us at the charity. Um, and we have been lucky enough to have received some grants over the years from them, um, which helps us continue the work that we're doing um, in in Merton as well, especially with, in terms of the Wimbledon Foundation. But more recently, they have come on board to support us for our sustainability campaign, which is called Unloved and Unwanted. Right. And that's a nationwide campaign where we ask for uh, pre-loved tennis rackets to be donated back to the charity. So we have a number of drop boxes which either sit at tennis clubs or with schools across the country. Um, and outside of that, we ask people to send the racket back to us at the charity. Now, what we do is we regrip and we clean up every racket. And first is the priority is to get a, the children's racket into um, the hands of our program children so that every child that comes through Give It Your Max receives their own free tennis racket, which is a pre-loved racket. And then the surplus, because uh, we ask for adult rackets as well, they sit on our website, which is um, giveityourmax.org. And we have a merchandise site there where we sell um, very cheaply, so it's affordable for people to buy a tennis racket. Um, and they sit on the site. So all of the um, proceeds come back into into the charity. So that's also how the Wimbledon Foundation support us as well. Um, we're really passionate about sustainability and also kind of breaking down those barriers that um, you know many people are aware of within tennis, that it, that it is more of an expensive sport if you compare it to football, where yeah. you can just get a ball and you can go out there and kick it against the wall. Tennis, you know, ultimately you, you do need equipment and the better you get, you, you need more equipment and also you need somebody else to 
to play with the other side unless you've got a great wall or a great garage to, to hit against um, and, um, and, and, and all the, everything that goes with um, with getting the children into tennis clubs and tennis lessons. So we we're very much about getting as many as many children um, that can't necessarily afford to play tennis getting them on the court and having fun and hopefully retaining them in the sport. We're not about searching for the next Andy Murray, although it'd be great if, if, a, if one of them came through one of our programs, but we're very much about kind of the grassroots and getting more tennis rackets in the, in the hands of children um, and, and giving them a really positive experience through, through tennis. And of course, um, you, you're right about, you know, getting everyone involved. Um, you know, you see in society, especially here in, in Britain, there's a lot of sports that is played. Uh, you know, you've got football, which is at the forefront. You always hear about it. Hear about it. You know, you've got the Premier League, then you've got the rugby, you've got the cricket, and of course tennis. Wimbledon being at you know the highest level of tennis. Um, how is um, you know playing tennis received by the kids at school? Of course, you know with all the other sports uh, on the side how is tennis received uh, you know of course you mentioned that you know tennis is a slightly more sophisticated game than uh, football so how is that received by the kids who do come through the program very well um i mean i wouldn't necessarily say that it's it's more sophisticated i i think um there's obviously equipment that's needed for tennis but i mean tennis is is one of the um the most played sports in the world and also um by, by both sexes as well so i think it's um if we can get more rackets in the hands of these youngsters the better because um otherwise they may not have been introduced to tennis otherwise if it wasn't to give it your max um and and getting to the programs and seeing the children and the smiles on their faces and how they listen to their coaches um and learning you know life skills really in a, in a very subtle way for them is is fantastic to see i mean we we receive really great feedback from the teachers within the schools that having had their tennis lesson whether it be in the breakfast club or um, in PE time when they go back into the classroom things like their concentration levels their overall confidence are are improved and that's what that's what it's about for us um, I mean we we had a, um, a, a really lovely report from one of the families where the, the, the child wasn't speaking outside of the home. Um, it was a refugee family and the child wasn't, wasn't communicating with, um, with her peers um, in the classroom, but it was kind of through her, through her tennis um, and building that confidence that she did actually start communicating um, outside, of, outside of her home, um, which, which makes us feel great in the work that we're doing. We've got a fantastic team of coaches that are, that are operating across the country um, and it wouldn't be possible without them and also the support of the likes of the Wimbledon Foundation and, and others that help us um, because we are a small charity and we, we run various different fundraising events as much as we can um, but unless we receive kind of the, the, the funds as well and support it, it makes it very difficult to continue the work that we do. Absolutely. Um, I just remembered that you previously said that, you know, you've got big plans for the future. So where do you see yourself, you know, in the next 10 years or so, uh, as far as the uh, charity is concerned? I think um, over the next 10 years, we're really, we're really working on um, more identified areas. So we have been probably more widely spread um, historically. So we're looking at working in the in the inner cities and really um, 
delivering all of our programs so kind of our disability um our breakfast club and also our give it your max plus which is um uh it i think it's likened to the duke of edinburgh award but within sports so we offer kind of a two-year um course for the youngsters and within that they've got mentors they've got webinars kind of hearing from uh, industry experts within the sport so kind of broadening their horizons so when they leave school and they kind of kind of getting ready to do their GCSEs they can start thinking whether they're you know some some may go to university and others might decide to go straight out into into the workforce but kind of broadening their horizon so they think well you know could I potentially get a job um, within the um, LTA the Lawn Tennis Association or might I be a tennis coach Um, maybe go into um, journalism whatever it may be but just just giving them more opportunities so we really want to, um, to to be doing a much greater and have a lot more impact in the areas that we're working in over the next 10 years and ultimately reach many more children. Absolutely. Uh, and finally, before we let you go, um, what advice would you give to parents uh, you know, who want their kids to get into tennis or whose kids have shown some interest in tennis? What route could they take or what can they do to get their children involved in playing tennis um what sort of support do you also give with that um well within within the areas um you know london liverpool hull manchester and birmingham that's where we work as a charity but if they're if they're outside of that um then the the kind of the first port of call is within the LTA and um, they're doing a brilliant job across the country in getting more children playing tennis and they've got various different schemes as well um, and making it affordable for youngsters so that that would be my advice is to if it's kind of outside where we're working as a charity I would um, absolutely be with the um, calling with the, the, the LTA and then also go along to the local community centres, a lot of them are running um, kind of the, the, the tennis lessons in within halls and sports halls, and so um, the local tennis club as well. Right, brilliant. Thank you very much. You know, it was a, a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for all the uh, information that you've given us with regards to tennis. And if, you know, there is anyone out there who wishes to go into tennis, you know, it would be great aid uh, especially with what you have told us. So thank you, um, Abigail, for uh, this morning. I know it's, it was quite early in the morning, but we are very mm-hmm. grateful for your time and we hope that you have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right, so that was Abigail who is um, uh, part of the um, charity Give It Your Max, talking to us about the programs and support uh, that they offer. Uh, right. Uh, to conclude uh, this segment, uh, gentlemen, um, I am uh, reminded of uh, this book, uh, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, written by the Promised Messiah, uh, on whom be peace, um, uh, in which he talks about the connection between uh, uh, body and soul, body and mind. Um, Imam Zafri, can you uh, maybe take a couple of minutes to to explain what uh, he writes in that book and how does that connect with the topic at hand? Absolutely. So, <clears throat> of course, the Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, speaking about the notion of man's creation and the essence of his being, says that, of course, we've been given two aspects. One's the physical aspect and one's the mental or spiritual aspect and he states that that both of them 
go hand in hand. He gives the example of um, of a body, you know, referring to a uh, quote or a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that when one part of the body hurts, then the whole body itself feels agony. And that is to show that, you know, we're so attached or our limbs are such a vital part that if one place was to ache, then the whole body would be in, you know, an agony. And he says that this is the same thing with spirituality, that spirituality is also attached to us. So if we lack in one aspect, uh, you know, the whole spirituality, the, the spiritual body will be affected. And they both go hand in hand. And, you know, he gives the example of prayers that, you know, if, may, if you know, a spiritual thing was merely reciting words and praying to God, then there'll be no need for, you know, showing physical um, or doing physical acts of worship. You know, merely the thought of God would be enough. But he states that that is not enough for one to exceed in or advance in spiritual um, manner. Uh, therefore, giving the example of uh, the Islamic prayer, he states that, you know, there's different stages of the Islamic prayer. You stand up, then you kneel down, then you bow down, then you, you know, you prostrate, then you sit. And all of these things are physical, yet they have an attachment to the spiritual realm. And through those different uh, phases of prayer, there's different effects that it has on the spiritual side. It has a different effect on the heart. Uh, and through those different actions, you go through different spiritual emotions. You know, you mentioning the greatness of God, showing humility, showing that, you know, when prostrating that, you know, we are, um, as humans, we aren't perfect. And, you know, there's so many things that can only happen through the grace of God. So really asking God, you know, showing that extreme humility, putting your face down on the ground, showing extreme humility has a certain effect on the heart. So all of those things the Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, mentions and states that, you know, physically being strong, you know, and referring back to the the saying of the Holy Prophet that a strong believer or a physically strong believer is better than a weak believer. And, you know, referring to that, it shows that, you know, when you are physically active, you are a you know, you, from that notion that, you know, you're stronger. And that necessarily doesn't mean that, you know, you're stronger in faith, but it has an impact. And of course, if you're praying perfectly, doing the, all of the actions, you have to be physically fit, you know. But if you're just sitting down in the chair, uh, you might not be able to feel the same emotions when you're doing it, when you're performing those actions uh, as they have been prescribed, so you know, of course, if you if you if you aren't physically well, if you can't kneel down, you can't go into prostration. So you might not be able to feel the same thing. And I can, you know, myself uh, bear testimony to that. You know, I've had a few injuries in the past, and whereby I've had to sit down and pray on a chair, and uh, it doesn't feel the same whilst praying. You know, uh, or. Do, fulfilling the actions that have been prescribed mm -hmm. so there is an impact of the physical world sure. that affects our phys uh, spiritual realm our spiritual life so all of these things you know coming back to the point that a strong believer is better than a believer who's weak actually makes sense in the spiritual realm as well and this is what he's expounded on in his book
Right. Uh, thank you very, very much for that. And uh, that concludes uh, the first segment of our show this morning, which is about sports and importance of uh, sports in life. Moving swiftly on to the second segment, uh, which is about smartwatches um, and the help that they may provide early diagnosis of uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, Imam Nabil Bhatti, you are um, a proud, uh, proud um, wearer of the uh, of of a smartwatch uh, or smartwatches. Uh, can you introduce this topic, please? Sure. Um, so the gist of the story is that smartwatches might help diagnose Parkinson's disease up to seven years ahead of symptoms, which a study suggests. So the UK Dementia Research Institute team in Cardiff University used AI to analyze data from 103,712 smartwatch wearers. And by tracking their speed of movement over a single week between 2013 and 2016, they were able to predict which would go on to develop Parkinson's. It is hoped that this could ultimately be used as a screening tool. But more studies suggest that comparing these findings with other data gathered around the world, I need to check how accurate it will be the researchers say in the journal Nature Medicine, the brains of people with Parkinson's disease become damaged over many years. Symptoms include such as involuntary shaking or tremors, slow movement, stiff and inflexible muscles. But often by the time a diagnosis has been made, there has already been too much irre irreversible damage to the brain cells. And since about 30% of the UK population wore smartwatches, um, study, lead, uh, study leader Dr. Cynthia Sandor said that, that they might offer a cheap and reliable way to identify early stage Parkinson's. We have shown that here that in a single week of data captured can predict events up to seven years in the future, she said. Um, she carries on saying that with these results, we could develop a valuable screening tool to aid in the early detection of Parkinson's. Um, this is this has implications both for research in improving recruitment in clinical trials and in clinical practice in allowing patients to access treatments at an early stage in future when such treatments become available. Um, studies used data from the UK Biobank and in-depth health database of more than half a million people. So that was a short gist of the story. Uh, sure. Thank you very much. Uh, Imam Zafri, what is Parkinson's disease? Uh, what are the symptoms, etc.? So basically, Parkinson's disease is a uh, brain disorder uh, that uh, basically causes uh, unintentional, uncontrollable movements um, such as um, <clears throat> shaking, uh, stiffness, uh, difficulty in balancing yourself, uh, coordination is affected uh, and they aren't any particular you know there's no particular order of um, symptoms that you have you know there's uh, many different symptoms for uh, Parkinson's disease um, it's uh, unlikely that a person with with uh, Parkinson's disease uh, would uh, experience any of those symptoms that might be mentioned so um the main ones you know that come with parkinson's disease are most likely to be the tremors 
slowness of physical movement, uh, you know, muscles being rigid, uh, muscle cramps. Uh, and then the other symptoms which uh, are part of the Parkinson's disease are the problems in balancing yourself, uh, losing sense of smell, uh, nerve pain, uh, problems with urinating, uh, constipation, dizziness, excessive sweating, uh, swallowing difficulties. So all of these things uh, affect, you know, uh, the person or are symptoms that could be shown for a person who's developing Parkinson's disease. And I think, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people who might be aware, uh, Parkinson's disease actually is get, becoming quite prevalent. Uh, one of, uh, you know, as we were speaking about sports as well, and one of a icon of sports, boxing sports, uh, Muhammad Ali, mm. he, you know, he had developed Parkinson's disease. And he was a person who was known to have Parkinson's disease. And anyone who has seen videos of him in his later life, they see that, you know, he had difficulties with balancing himself, himself mm. slow, you know, slow movement. You know, he used to have tremors, shaking. So all of those things that, you, you know, people had seen with Muhammad Ali, those are symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Right. Um Let's go straight to our first guest, who is Becky Jones from Parkinson's UK. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much, Becky. So uh, tell us firstly about Parkinson's UK and the work um, uh, that you do in here in the UK. Yeah, of course. Um, so Parkinson's UK is here to support everyone affected by the condition. Um, we're the largest charitable funder of Parkinson's research in Europe, and we are aim to support um, to support everyone in the community, fight for fair treatment, better services, and um, get towards uh, finding new treatments and hopefully one day a cure for Parkinson's. Right, um, Becky. We try to to introduce the disease and talk about the disease of Parkinson's. That is a uh, uh, as best as we could. Can you tell us what, what Parkinson's is? Yeah, of course. So Parkinson's is actually the fastest growing neurological condition in the world. Mm. Um, it's a progressive condition and it happens when uh, cells in the brain that are responsible for producing a brain chemical called dopamine start to die. Um, by the time people start to experience some of the symptoms that we might think of when we think about Parkinson's, around 70% of those brain cells have died and at the moment we don't have any way of bringing them back. Um, three of the most common recognised symptoms are things like a tremor, so shaking, or slowness of movement and rigidity, or muscle stiffness. But there are actually over 40 symptoms of Parkinson's and how they present is very, very different from person to person. The experience is really unique. And we think in the UK at the moment, around 145,000 people have a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Okay, um, thank you for that. Um, my question to you is that currently, as we know, that there's no cure for Parkinson's. So how important is the research um, that goes in finding the cure? And what are some of the research projects that are part of Parkinson's UK? Yeah, it's incredibly important. Um, 
we Parkinson's is a, a very complex condition. There's still a lot that we don't know. Um, we, we're not sure how it starts. Research is bringing us closer to these answers every day. But people with a condition definitely and desperately need new and better treatments. So at Parkinson's UK, we're committed to funding research that um, addresses some of the symptoms that people with Parkinson's have told us are priorities and make them our priorities too so we can get closer to, to finding ways to find a cure but also to improve life for people with Parkinson's today. Um, Parkinson's, I've um, mentioned already, is quite unique. Um, it, the experience is very different for everyone. So it's unlikely that there'll be one cure that works for everyone. Um, and as a result of that, we're looking at a number of different projects that um, will try to address some of the different symptoms. Um, at the moment, it's an exciting time in Parkinson's research. There's a number of promising new drugs that are on the horizon that look like um, they they might be able to slow or, or stop progression. These are in early clinical trials, so there's a way to go yet, but it's very exciting. And Parkinson's UK are funding um, a couple of those in particular. We're also looking at funding um, drugs, so repurposing drugs, so taking an existing drug that's used for something, for example, um, for anti-sickness medication, one of the drugs that we're looking at at the moment is currently already approved for that use, but it's possible that it might also be useful for treating hallucinations, which are sometimes a symptom of Parkinson's um, that some people experience. Um, so this is exciting because this is um, this will help us kind of fast track those drugs towards new purposes. Mm-hmm. Right. We've also Sorry, 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 go ahead. Um, we're also funding an international drug trial at the moment, um, which is looking to reduce inflammation in the brain. Right. Um, so this is associated some people who have a um, a sleep condition called um, RBD, um, which is involved with, which presents as really dr- a disrupted sleep. Research has shown that around 70% of people who have RBD might go on to develop Parkinson's later in life. So um, we're inviting people who have RBD before they've been diagnosed with Parkinson's to take part in a drug trial to look at this this new drug and see if we might find ways of slowing down um, the progression to Parkinson's or or um, or or uh, treating it as early as possible. Speaking about you know being able to counter the effects of um, Parkinson's disease, recently some researchers have found uh, that smartwatches could actually help in early diagnosis of Parkinson's. Um, what are the um, you know just for the benefit of our listeners, what are the early signs of Parkinson's disease? And how important, I mean, in the journey of a person who is diagnosed with, uh, you know, Parkinson's disease, how important it is uh, early diagnosis? Yeah, really great question. So some of the, obviously, it's, it's different for everyone, but some of the early signs of Parkinson's can include things like a loss of your sense of smell, um, trouble sleeping or really disrupted sleep or um, anxiety, other kinds of mental health-related issues. 
Um, but the time, but by the time someone develops those really um, more kind of classical symptoms of Parkinson's, things like that we talked about earlier, like a tremor or problems with walking, handwriting becoming smaller. Um, these are the things that often prompt someone to speak to their GP. But we um, believe that by that time, as a, a, a significant amount of damage has already happened in the brain. Up to 70% of the cells responsible for making dopamine, which we talked about before, might already um, be damaged or starting to die. So if we can find ways of identifying people um, who might go on to develop Parkinson's later in life much sooner, we can, um, in the way that the smartwatch research showed, could be could pave the way to finding new ways to, inter to intervene much earlier or even help us understand the condition a bit better. Obviously, it's very difficult to understand what's happening in those very early stages if we're not if we're not being able to track people in, in that day in in that stage of the condition. So it's really exciting that um, this could help us find new ways to intervene much sooner and potentially even slow down or stop the damage to those brain cells and therefore even potentially prevent Parkinson's one day in the future. Absolutely, hopefully. Uh, we we get to the stage where you know we can prevent prevent this uh, disease. Um, finally, just before we let you go, could you just let us know how you know people can get involved in supporting with supporting people who have Parkinson's disease, and also support the advancement of treatment uh, and cure for Parkinson's? Of course. So. Um Parkinson's UK is a, a big support charity um, and we're we're really passionate about supporting people with Parkinson's and everyone in that um, in the community so uh, if you visit our website which is parkinson's.org.uk there's loads of support on there and um, for anyone in the Parkinson's community um, to, to provide some help in terms of supporting the search for a cure there are two ways. The obvious way is um, donating to Parkinson's UK. We're the largest funder of European research, but with your donations, we can help fund more research um, and and tackle, bring um, some of those exciting trials um, even closer. But another really, really important way is to take part in research. So um, without people taking part in research, people from all of the Parkinson's community, whether you have Parkinson's, a diagnosis of Parkinson's at the moment or you don't, um, we can't find new treatments. We really need people to be able to come forward and test these new treatments. So that doesn't mean um, necessarily taking part in a drugs trial. This might be um, chatting to your, chatting to a researcher about your experience, filling in a questionnaire, and you can find ways to take part in research on our Take Part Hub, um, which is also on our website, parkinson.org.uk. But it's really crucial that we have as many people as possible and people that will represent the whole Parkinson's community, any age, any race, any ethnicity, so we make sure that the, the treatments of the future are really suitable for everyone. 
Excellent. Thank you very, very much, Becky, once again for joining us this morning. Uh, you've certainly made us wiser. Um, all the best with the excellent work that you're doing. The future does look uh, promising. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and views. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. Have a lovely day. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Becky Jones from uh, Parkinson's UK. Uh, let me go straight uh, now to our last guest uh, for the show, uh, which is Michelle Orini, uh, who studied biomedical engineering at the Polytechnic University of Milan and got a second master's of engineering uh, from Paris. Uh, he did a PhD in cardiovascular uh, signal processing at the University of Zaragoza in Spain as well. Assalamu alaikum, peace with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Oh, hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Uh, thank you so very much uh, for taking the time this morning. So, uh, in recent studies, it has been identified that smartwatches can now track and even uh, predict health outcomes. Uh, what sort of data is uh, is there to support that? Yeah, so in, in terms of the, the, the type of data we can collect with the um, wearable devices and smartwatches, um, there are roughly speaking three types of sensor. One is the accelerometer that measure uh, movement, and is the type of data that has been used in the paper that you have just discussed to detect um, Parkinson's disease. Um, one of the other sensors that is um, often used is called photoplatismography, uh, which basically is the um, optical sensor on the back of the smartwatch that emits some light. It's, it's easy to spot it when we look at these uh, smartwatches. And what it does it is it basically measures the amount of blood that passes underneath uh, the sensor. And using those data, we can measure things like heart rate, uh, heart rate variability, uh, respiratory rate, um, oxygen uh, saturation, uh, etc. And then there are the more advanced smartwatches nowadays allows to measure um, the electrocardiogram, which is basically an electrical signal that um, provides information about the electrical activity of the heart, and it is um, used to detect things like cardiac arrhythmias. And how, in terms of the type of sorry, sorry go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you how how accurate uh, and reliable is this data uh, coming from smartwatches uh, vis-a-vis, for example, professional um, uh, or, or traditional uh, instruments that you would use in hospitals. Uh, this is an excellent question, and uh, it's actually the focus of a lot of research, um, in the sense that the devices are becoming more and more accurate. Um, the main problem is um, movement, uh, because when we go to the hospital, for instance, to take a, an ECG, uh, we use more sophisticated electrocardiogram. We use more sophisticated um, equipment with electrodes that need to be attached to uh, the chest and, and, and so on. While using a, a smartwatch, we can do that at home, um, but. We, we may be moving, we may be do that not um, as correctly as when instructed by a nurse, um, but they are becoming um, more and more reliable and more and more um, accurate. How, um, my question to you is, um, how useful have smartwatches been in predicting early health diagnosis, especially in future heart problems? Yeah, this is a, a, a topic that is uh, very much researched in, in 
recently. And um, there are basically two types of prediction. One is prediction of current uh, health status. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in this in this space, um, we have done a lot of progress. For instance, uh, there are smart watches that through the analysis of this electrocardiogram can assess whether a person have, has um, atrial fibrillation, which is a cardiac arrhythmia, um, which is increase um, substantially the risk of stroke. And there has been quite a lot of, uh, a number of studies validating uh, this technique, and it seems to work pretty um, pretty well. There are also smartwatches um, or wrist-worn devices uh, nowadays that uh, measure uh, blood pressure without the need of a cuff um, and can measure blood pressure continuously. Um, I haven't really used this type of device in, in my research, so I don't really know how accurate they can be. Um, but I've seen several studies claiming that they are quite accurate and obviously uh, being able to measure, uh, to detect hypertension, so when the blood pressure is too elevated, um, without the need of um, a measurement with a, 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 um, the usual device that has a calf in, in flame, um, and so on is, is very much um, welcome. Uh, then the the possibility of measuring future events is something that I think is, is still in the uh, early days, but there are very, very promising uh, results. Um, one result, one uh, study, for instance, from the, the States that has been recently published, uh, used um, smartwatches that can be, let's say, consumer-grade uh, smartwatches, um, and again, use, using these uh, signal, which is the electrocardiogram, was able to identify, um, not only identify a person with cardiac dysfunction, but also to predict uh, the occurrence of cardiac dysfunction. And also, some of my research using um, wearable format data, so data that was collected with medical device, uh, but uh, in the same format that is collected using smartwatches, we, we demonstrated that we were able to predict um, the increased risk of occurrence of heart failure and atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as a smart wearer myself, <laughs> um, uh, I do sometimes do play around with the I think the ECG app um, on the Apple Watch. Um, and uh, you know, like you're mentioning, it does detect um, if there's any irregular heartbeat or rhythm that goes on. But how accurate would that be at this stage? So, for detection of atrial fibrillation, uh, data shows that is actually quite accurate. Okay. Um, obviously, um, it may not be as accurate as um, using an ECG in the clinic, but it's one of the most reliable. Uh, test that can be done, let's say, uh, using the ECG to detect current uh, atrial fibrillation or heart trouble. Oh, okay, okay. That's good too. Right, the thing is that, of course, <clears throat> you know, from a research background and perspective, it makes sense that, you know, you're able to gather data for for that research, especially from people who are wearing smartwatches. But if if you go to the grassroots level, anyone who's wearing a smartwatch, let's say I decide to wear a smartwatch today, how can I take benefit, 
you know, for my health uh, through a smartwatch? How, you know, what tools are there for for my personal use to increase my, uh, you know, my medical awareness of myself? So, you know, if you could just shed some light on that. I think this is a very an excellent, excellent question. Um, so th- there are several things. Uh, one is that the, all these smartwatches, um, they can be used to monitor physical activity uh, in general. And I think this is uh, still one of the most important parameters uh, that reflect uh, our health. Um, right. And so if you, you can count your steps, you can count uh, the time you spend in um, vigorous activity, for instance, that we know is beneficial for your, our health, or you can uh, count the time you spend in sedentary activity, which is detrimental for our health. Uh, then there are apps like the uh, ECG app that you mentioned before, where you can uh, check whether you have uh, any arrhythmias, and if you have, you may want to discuss that with the GP, obviously, there's no need to panic because uh, very often these type of things can be not particularly serious or the accuracy of the device, even if it is very high, uh, it may always be um, detect some false positive, let's say. Then there are uh, other apps that have been developed and would be available soon that can be measure um, uh, blood pressure. And this again in the very important uh, parameters. Some uh, smartwatches measure heart rate variability. That is uh, an important parameter, in particular uh, providing information about um, our health in general and the autonomic nervous system uh, functioning. Um, the, some other smartwatches, like the Garmin watch that I regularly use, uh, also, also measure something called VO2 max, um, which is a parameter which basically reflect our cardiorespiratory fitness, so how uh, fit we we are. And I think in the future we will have more and more precise and accurate tools to uh, identify any uh, heart problem or even future heart problem using these devices. Right. right. Thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning. It was a pleasure to speak to you, Michelle Lorraine. Uh, have a lovely day and uh, peace be with you. Thank you very much. It was great to uh, to speak to the show. Bye. Likewise. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. So uh, that was Michelle Orini, who um, uh, has studied biomedical engineering. was was talking to us about. Uh, uh, some research that is being conducted um, in that space, as well as the importance of, uh, as well as the the data that uh, actually can um, uh, is churned out by smartwatches and uh, how things are changing very quickly in the world world of technology, uh, and how that is aiding the uh, um, the detection. Um, of uh, and prevention of disease. Right. Uh, if I can uh, turn to you. Um, uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti, we are coming towards the end of the show. Um, what is the importance of research and knowledge in Islam? Muslims are, I think, a lazy stereotype that is um, uh, uh, that is put against Islam and Muslims is that uh, um, are, that knowledge is uh, and, and learning is not something which uh, is really uh, something um, uh, which is attributed 
uh, to Muslims. Uh, what sort of truth there is in terms of uh, the actual Islamic teaching? Um, I think a lot of people try to, you know, as this, um, also the Western society doesn't realize that a lot of the equipment and technology that they use is derived from Islamic um, scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, the computing system that we're currently using to function this breakfast show right now is derived from Islamic scholars in terms of mathematics, mm-hmm. in terms of science, in terms of physics. And um, that actually shows the importance of knowledge that has been instilled in um, Islam. Right. That God has given man such faculties for whereas they can gain and learn those skills and um, use those skills for the benefit of humankind and uh, help them with such capabilities. Um, for example, that given is, um, you know, if we look back around 100, 150 years ago, no one would think that steam can be used to run an engine. Yeah. Right. And people tend to just, you know, run that over the head that it's just a normal thing. It wasn't a normal thing back then. Yeah. Right. So we know that God has given people such capabilities in order to create that. Islam teaches those to take advantage of those technology and those capabilities. Right. So in your earlier part of the answer, you were talking about uh, some inventions by the Muslim scientists, uh, you know, back in the 8th, 9th. And uh, and 10 centuries when uh, the rest of the world was going through a period of dark ages, but there was a lot of light emanating from places like Baghdad and um, and Spain. Um, uh, do you want to maybe shed a little bit uh, of light on um, uh, on on that period, but also the uh, the 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 importance of pursuit of knowledge, as is um, uh, both described in the Quran as well as in the uh, in the tradition of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him um, um, absolutely I think <clears throat> coming, coming to the first part of the question I think it's important to understand that the way unfortunately the way the Muslim scholars and I'm not talking about Islamic scholars I'm talking about scholars in different fields of knowledge Unfortunately, they haven't been held as some other you know, pioneers have been celebrated. And I'm not taking anything away from anyone. Hmm. Uh, and I wish not to do that. Uh, but it's also important to you know, pay tribute where it's deserved or where it's necessary. Uh, and you know, looking at it from a historical demograph, we see that in the 11th, 10th, 9th, 8th, Uh, 8th century Uh, much of the world was going through a dark period when it comes to acquiring knowledge Uh, and you know we are all aware of the medieval era of you know Britain itself Uh, Britain wasn't what it is today it wasn't a hub of the world Mm. Uh, you know quite a derelict state uh, when it came to knowledge Uh, much of the population was (coughs) illiterate uh, unable to, you know, attend school. Only the most fortunate were somewhat educated. Um, and of course, the upper end of the hierarchy, the governors, the government, the... Uh, not even the government, the monarchy, those were the ones who were seen as the educated. Um, there was a lot of influence of religion, 
um, that we see in our history, in our British history. Um, so, you know, you know, historians have written as well that in terms of advancement, uh, we were in a bit of darkness. So this is one side of the world, and this was the state pretty much of all of Europe. <clears throat> then you come to the other side of the world, you know, uh, America, hasn't, America hasn't been discovered. A lot of the places that we speak of today, uh, they are still in somewhat darkness. And then we come to the world of the Muslims, where there's a lot of merchandise, there's a lot of, uh, you know, industry of traveling. People are traveling from one place to the other. The Islamic empire is growing, uh, you know, from all the way to North Africa, all the way to Asia, all the way to, you know, south of Europe. So Muslims are now learning from one another. There's travelers that are traveling. There's teachers that are coming. Um, books from Greek, uh, Greek philosophy, Greek medicine are being translated. More work is being done. We have a you know scholar who basically lays down the foundation for modern day medicine. His name being Avicenna, known as Ibn Sina as well. He writes the canon, the Qanun, which is the basis of modern day books of uh, anatomy. So he, you know, he done, he done thorough research um, in, in this, you know, he would go and, you know, you know, pay a lot of time uh, and spend a lot of time in discovering different things about the body. Um, then we have the camera, you know, uh, camera itself actually came from an Arabic word. Um, and, you know, the person behind it, he was working on, you know, the diffusion of light, how light was being impacted. So all of these things were being done a good a thousand years from today. Uh, and they laid down the foundations, they wrote books. And, you know, when the, this knowledge then transferred from the south of Europe towards uh, in the west, that then, you know, was used to further, you know, improve what had been laid down to come to the notion that we are at today. So it's important to understand that these people, they were, you know, beacons of knowledge who changed the world. And had it not been for their work, we might not have been where we are at today. Um, and the second part is that how important is it as Muslims to acquire knowledge? And I think we've said this many a time. Uh, on this show and other shows as well, that acquiring knowledge is a fundamental duty of a Muslim. Uh, there's a very famous saying of the holy founder of Islam that it is incumbent upon every Muslim man and woman to acquire knowledge. Now that itself is a statement uh, that you know you must acquire knowledge, you must seek knowledge. Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, even had said that seek knowledge even if you have to go to China. Now, this wasn't something, you know, where, you know, at that time China was the only place where uh, knowledge could be acquired. It was just, uh, you know, make a statement that if you have to f travel far and wide, even as far as China, because China at that time was, you know, miles away from Saudi Arabia or Arabia at that time. Uh, and it was seen as the corner or the end of the world. So, you know, saying that even if you have to go to China, i.e. if you have to travel miles and miles and if you have to go to the ends of the world to acquire knowledge, then you must do so. So seeking knowledge has been 
you know, it, it's it's part of a Muslim's fabric. You have to, it's embedded in everyone to seek knowledge. Because without seeking knowledge, you know, you can't learn about the intricacies of the world. And as Allah Almighty himself states that, uh, you know, the people who believe, the true believers, they ponder upon the creation of God. And that then creates more, you know, love for God. And you are able to get closer to your creator. And all of the different faculties of knowledge, they, in fact, you know, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective or Islamic perspective, they are there for you to think about the, you know, the, the origin of it. Where does it come from? How it was created? Who was a creator? And it all leads back to the being of God Almighty. And this is what Quran speaks of. And this is what we've been taught by the Holy Prophet to ponder upon the words of God, to ponder upon the creation of God. And science, knowledge, all falls under that category of the creation of uh, Allah Almighty, God Almighty. So it's important for us to understand, to observe, to ponder, uh, and acquire knowledge. It's a basic necessity, basic duty of a Muslim. Excellent, uh, uh, Imam Zafri, for, um, um, and thank you for that com- very comprehensive answer. And that brings us to, towards the end of the show today. Um, I must thank our producer, Dr. Zakir Rahman, researchers Ruksana, Saira Vajia, and Salia, my co-presenters, Imam Bash Zafri and Imam Nabil Bhatti. Excellent support from uh, the tech room, as always, from uh, Akib Ahmed. And to you, our listeners, for joining us uh, this morning. Please do join us again in a week's time when we'll be back next Monday. There will be another show tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. So please do join in for that show. Nine o'clock news is next.